Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. So this week on the pod, um, I am talking to a special guest, Max Hammond, who is a professor at Queen's University, um, and he makes works examining colonial North America, um, specifically the Métis Nation during the long 19th century. And his first book, The Audacity of His Enterprise, Le Riel and the Métis Nation that Canada Never Was, um, it won the Prix de l'Assemblée Nationale du Québec, right? Yes. And yes. was recognized by the Wilson Institute? It was, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So yeah. that's very impressive. And we're going to be talking about Le Riel and his experience um, at school and how that affected um, his later work um, with the Métis Nation yeah. and Manitoba. Oh yeah! Thanks for having me. It's uh, yeah, great to great to be here. Um, yeah. And I have to compliment you on your pronunciation. Oh, well done. Thank you. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> great. Um, I think that's from living with my very French husband. Probably. Ah, you got you drilled. They're very good. Yeah, it's excellent. Well, I, the the R is a special. I, my even my kids are are improving me on my R's. So. Uh, uh. Yeah, your, your Louis yeah. was excellent. <laughs> I try. Otherwise, I get yelled at. No, no, I don't get yelled at. He just, like, <laughs> says it quietly to himself, and it's annoying. So um, I guess to start off with, uh, we have about 50% of our listeners are not Canadians. So they're either Americans or somewhere in the far off abroad. Yeah. And... Uh, at least specifically for Americans, I think the American education system pointedly refuses to teach anything about Canada. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, I just want to sort of do a, a basic background rundown of uh, who was Louis Riel and um, what, when we talk about the Métis, what are we talking about? Well, I'll, I'll say that the American education system doesn't have an excuse in this case because he was an American citizen. I know. Um, right? So, so you you knew that you were you were set, you were setting me up for that, I'm sure. But I, I understand. Um, I mean, he is he's kind of he's an emblematic figure for Canadian history, really. Um, he's one of I I would argue he is the most significant historical figure in Canada. Point, full yeah. stop. Okay. Um, there is more. There are more biographies written on Louis Riel than any other historical figure, um, to yeah. my knowledge, and so that makes it a little bit challenging trying to get at the history of Riel because so much has been done on him. Mm -hmm. But there's like the first graphic novel that was written in yeah. Canada, um, Chester Brown coming out of Montreal. It takes up the subject of Louis Riel, and so it's a, a very popular history. Um, it's got a lot of traction in mm -hmm. in uh, in heritage and public history, public memory, um, and it's a big part of it. And the re one of the reasons for that is because of his centrality to the controversy of what makes up Canada. Um, right. Is Canada a, um, a settler nation? Is it a French 
uh, Canadian nation? Is it a um, colonized nation? Yeah. Some people would even say, is it an Aboriginal nation, right? Yeah. Um, and so Riel becomes a really important part of this because he he is a he's a he's a he evokes a moment when Canada kind of tries to define itself, and that's right. precisely due to his resistance to the Canadian state. So in 1885, Louis Riel is brought into this resistance movement in what's now Saskatchewan in the Northwest Territories, just north of um, Montana and North mm -hmm. Dakota. And he leads this um, resistance against the Canadian state, which is, which is basically taking over the Northwest and claiming its sovereignty there. And he is found guilty of treason um, for leading this armed rebellion, and he's mm -hmm. eventually executed um, yeah. as a traitor. And that right. becomes a really kind of huge moment in Canadian history that kind of establishes Canada's sovereignty in the Northwest. And so it's often Canadian history versus Louis Riel. That's kind of um, where he's best known. I, don't, I haven't given you much of the details of his life, but that's mm -hmm. kind of who he is um, figuratively, iconically. Um, and right. some people have said uh, he's kind of like the Che Guevara of Canada. Um, uh -huh. Or and the other version that I, I really like from a, a Montana historian, he's the John Brown. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's this kind of spiritual, anti-abolitionist um, man who led kind of a fool's um, resistance <laughs> against uh, the evil um, slave uh, empire of the uh, in, in Harper's raid, and he was eventually yeah. executed. So there's some interesting parallels there, uh, which I find interesting. But um, there's yeah. connections, and yeah. we all spent a lot of his life in the United States. He's got a lot of allies in the state in the states, um, but he's really is a really key uh, iconic figure in Canada. Right. Um, but I don't know. Did you want more back like biography of him, or is um, that no? Just sort of just so okay. that we understand. Yeah. Why still, are we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, why would he be a, a an an example for this point in the in the podcast? Yeah. Um, would be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, and then one of the other things I might just say about that. Yeah. So, like in in Canadian history, it tends to be divided up into like pre and post Confederation Canada. Mm -hmm. So it's. 1867 mm -hmm. is kind of this this date which kind of most history courses will go up to 1867 and then courses will go after 1867. Mm -hmm. 1885 is another contender for one of those key watershed debates so yeah. when Riel is executed and that's because there's this really important shift that happens in the relationship between um, indigenous peoples um, and the Canadian state in the 1885 period and I'm quite interested in, in shifting courses to reflect that, to think about how do we talk about Canadian history up to 1885 and how do we talk about it post-1885 and Riel is a key moment in that transition of course. Um, so it's an attempt to push back against the, the narrative of Canadian state centrality mm -hmm. and to putting Indigenous people back in um, as, as a central role in that. 1885 is a, is a really good choice for that. Oh, cool, okay, great. Um... And then, yeah, so the second question is probably a, a little more difficult to answer, I guess, mm. um, given that we're going to start talking about, like, Riel's early life. Um, so if we have a little bit of background on um, the Métis Nation and sort of mm. what that means, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, we can talk about what it means, what it means now for context and then mm -hmm. sort of go back or however you think it makes sense to frame that. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me, <laughs> I guess one of the best ways to begin with that is so real currently, and perhaps this is the way to get real currently, he's a hero for French Canadians mm -hmm. and that's, mm -hmm especially in Quebec, but also especially outside of Quebec. Yeah. Um, because he's seen as a, as a martyr for French Canadians suffering against this Anglophone state, which has oppressed mm -hmm. French Catholics. Um, and so the identity of a French Canadian being executed by the, the Canadian state is a big part of this French Canadian identity has. Mm -hmm. but within that French Canadian identity, there is this idea of the Métis people. Uh, mm -hmm. Métis, who are um, now recognized and for many years have been recognized as a, as a, as a nation which emerged um, prior to Canadian um, establishment of control in the Northwest. Um, and this was a, uh, a people that were considered to be a mixture of um, indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. um, and the settler peoples who were coming in. And they emerged out of the fur trade um, so you have French Canadian fathers um, coming in and marrying indigenous women, but living within indigenous communities. And okay. this people eventually developed their own identity and their own nationhood, uh, their own sense of laws, their own, um, they govern themselves. Mm -hmm. And these, those people become the Métis people who are, um, they're, they're in, this, they're in the um, northern uh, states, uh, northern western United States. Um, and uh, Western Canadian provinces. Um, and they move quite over a very large territory, but they have a clear sense of, of a homeland. Mm -hmm. They have a clear sense of uh, kin relationships and um, a sense of belonging, which emerges as a result of their involvement in the fur trade, but then particularly the offshoots of that, um, particularly the, the production of um, uh, pemmican, through bison hunting and also the buffalo fur um, fur robe trade. So the Métis are a people who are part of a uh, part of a French Canadianness, but also really most importantly are an indigenous group. Mm -hmm. um, and increasingly they are over the 19th century, they are consolidated as a nation within the within the Western provinces and the Northwestern United States. Is that mm -hmm kind of get what you're yeah yeah no totally that's uh wonderful i do just before i start asking about the college de montreal uh the kinship ties that you mentioned mm -hmm. um i think are probably really important yeah so <laughs> this is this is where it gets really interesting and really complicated now um for anybody who is interested in this perhaps one of the the, the places to go to if you want more information would be um, looking at Brenda McDougall's work. Um, her book, One in the Family, is really key, really important. But also the work of Nicole Saint-Ange and uh, Carolyn Perdrucci. A lot of the people have worked on the importance of, uh, um, and of, of course, a really um, important young scholar, uh, Emily uh, Pigeon, has done stuff on how uh, the, these kinship ties held together bands of Metis people who were going out on the plains to hunt buffalo and how mm -hmm. that gives a sense of governance and how particularly important women were in holding together these Metis families and giving them a sense of identity and a sense of uh, belonging. And so Riel, you'll hear Riel talk about, you know, it's our mothers who give us our ties to the land. 
And so it's really important that the kin, the idea of kin um, ties are um, recognized as key to, to um, Métis identity and Métis nationhood. Um, and uh, Brenda McDougall and uh, all these other folks have, have studied this through really interesting work on genealogy. But what's also interesting is how sometimes you have people who are moving outside of these. Um, so with the Riel's case, you have family in Montreal. Mm-hmm. He has an aunt. He's got an uncle yeah. who live here. Um, his grandparents die here. And yeah. um, his father comes to Montreal to get baptized. So there's ties that, that extend out beyond the nation. Um, and will, these people will eventually become assimilated into you know, uh, French-Canadian identity in Quebec. Um, so it's complicated. Um, right. And I think that's that's important to to remember that you know that you you have the, the ties of kin allow a coherence, but they also allow extensions beyond specific territories, um, which allow people like Louis Riel to come into Montreal and to feel as though this is part of his home. Um, that will become less easy as we get to the second half of the 19th century, where the there's a disaggregation. A separation between a Western and Eastern identities of French Canadianness, and mm-hmm. Riel particularly, I in my reading, I think he he feels betrayed by um, many French Canadians towards the end of his life, um, because they don't support him in ways he would have expected. Um, but there's always a sense of you know, well, you're kin, you're supposed to help and support us because of these ties, um, and so yeah, cousins. Aunts, uncles are really important to maintaining that sense of community, but they're also allowing you to go beyond that. And that's really, it's that, that sense of uh, holding together a, a community um, through kin ties, which gives it the basis of indigenous um, identities. Um, and that, yeah, that, yeah, I'll leave it there. Okay. I could well, talk forever and ever, but, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, when we've been talking about setting this interview up I've been mentioning like my research in uh, Cherokee and I think again that's a really similar uh, system to what happened um, with like the early integration of like white traders into Cherokee and the unified nation that kind of comes out of it rather than um, the separate townships that had existed before any sort of um, Western contact or Euro-Western contact. Yeah. Um, And I think it's the, the, the importance of recognizing um, the fact that it's, it's really, it is uh, indigenous women who are mm -hmm. holding this together. Yeah. Uh, it's really key to this um, because typically there, there was old classic histories um, which are which have been debunked really um, that um, you know there were these adventuring canoeists who uh, sailed up the rivers and you know left their offspring in, in the in the in the hinterlands who created this new um, half-breed nation quote-unquote half-breed and as this, the work of you know historians for the past 40 years have been showing that no these um, the the women who are controlling these relationships play mm-hmm. a really important part in um, what resources um, the traders can have access to. Yeah. What's the future of the of the, the 
the sons and daughters mm -hmm. um, and what language they end up learning, what religions they end up learning. Right. Um, those are really important to understanding how culture becomes really important part of community and then politics as well. Um, right. So I think we, you can't really separate family and politics in, 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 right. this, in this particular context. Sorry. Okay. Um, so yeah, so we have like coming from that community in the West, then uh, Riel comes, well, he starts his schooling in, out West and then comes to Montreal. Right? Yes. So, yeah, so, so the, the basic story for, for Riel, so mm -hmm. my, my book covers like the, his youth. It, it actually, it, it starts with his parents. Right. Um, his his mother and father and their um, role in the increasingly um, settled community of mm -hmm. uh, Saint Boniface Saint Vital, what becomes Winnipeg, um, and then the birth of Louis Riel in his grandparents' home, um, and then his early education in in Red River, and then and then his move to Montreal, um, where right. he is educated. So he moves there at age fourteen. Mm -hmm. um, and he's sent with three other Metis boys, so he's not unique, but he's, he's recognized as one of the most promising young students from this um, rather small um, French-Canadian or French-Catholic community in, um, in the West, and it's kind of an experiment. Um, mm -hmm. The priest who sends, them, sends these boys to, the, to Montreal wants them to come back to become basically missionaries for the Catholic Church. Right. Um, and he would like them to get the best possible education they can, um, become verse in, in Latin and in the, in the, learn how to, uh, to, run, to have whole masses and uh, to educate people. Um, mm -hmm. So he sends them east with scholarships um, to have them educated in various different um, schools in, uh, in Quebec. Um, and Riel gets sent to Montreal, um, which I think think I would argue is probably one of the most elite schools in uh, Canada at the time. Mm -hmm. um, the Petit Seminaire, as it becomes later known, was the Collège de Montréal. Um, yeah. And it's a training or seating ground for future priests. Um, right. After, so he, he goes there at age 14 and he's there until he's 21, uh, 22. Mm -hmm. um, and then the idea would be that eventually they would go on to the Grand Seminaire to become trained as priests. Um, so it's a kind of a secondary high school. They're learning uh, Latin, Greek, um, basics of arithmetic. They will eventually learn philosophy and rhetoric at the higher levels. Um, and um, yeah, history, geography. But it's, it's really, this is, uh, this is the school of the elite of yeah. French Canada. Um, right. They will become the future politicians, future clerics, future uh, lawyers, um, literati, this is uh, one of the um, one of the ways in which French Canadian, or actually even French identity, because mm -hmm. the Sulpicians are a, are a refugee community that have come out of the post-revolutionary uh, France that come into mm -hmm. Canada, are trying to preserve and reproduce a elite French culture in the New World, and so they're yeah. bringing with them this whole. European colonial, colonial knowledge, of, um, pushing back against secular enlightenment, um, revitalizing um, spiritual education in, in the new world. 
So right. um, that's uh, that's the con the broad context of the school. Yeah. So uh, so given that right, he's one of one of three Métis. They're not all sent to the same school. No. Um, right. Okay. I can't, so <laughs> Louis Schmidt is sent to Saint Hyacinthe. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the other two where, where they're sent to, but um, okay. Louis Schmidt I know because he's a good friend of, of Riel, and yeah. they would in the summer vacations they would sometimes they would meet up and they talk right. about canoeing on the rapids and Lachine and stuff like that, <laughs> and going on picnics with the nuns and stuff. Like that. And so it's interesting. You have these kind of touches of you know a, a personal life. You know where they yeah. still manage, but they're separated, okay. um, and they're not. I mean, they're, they're sent here and it's kind of like, okay, off you go to the school and then they just kind of get absorbed in, in the body of students and you don't yeah. really see much trace of them in the archives there. Okay, cool. Yeah, because that's what I was sort of going to ask about, like how, what, what would that experience as Métis or as Indigenous be like in this very elite right. educational system? Yeah, so is... Is, is Riel like kind of racialized as different? Is he identified yeah. as different? I think it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a tough question to answer, but and I, cause I think it's also ambiguous um, right. what his response is, but there's certainly a sense he's, he's different. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're also in the years of the American Civil War. There are American refugees who have come up here. Um, mm -hmm. We have a large number of uh, foreign uh, Irish students who are coming into this, uh, this school. So there's a there's a fairly international body at this school. And we're talking, you know, 10 to 15 percent would be international students. Okay. So Riel fits within that. It's not he's not a weirdo. Um, <laughs> he is a, a select group uh, student. He's a select student. Yeah. At the same time, yeah, he's a man from the frontier. He's yeah. he talks with a, one of his fellow classmates talks about Riel. Um, encountering the Sioux, he tells he sits in the play he sits in the playground and tells them stories about encountering the Sioux and you know and seeing the scalps on their belts and this terrifying savages that they were. So Riel is playing a little bit. He's playing up okay. the fact that he's uh, from Indian country, as it were. Right. And I think that's that was an uh, important. But um, one other um, scholar, Alan Downey, pointed that out to me. Riel's quite good at knowing when it's important to play this up, to get a little bit of mm -hmm. social cred from your fellows. And they'll recognize how, um, how important, uh, they'll recognize your own, you know, where, where, you, where you're, um, why it would be interesting to talk to you. Yeah. At the same time, mm -hmm. Riel's, he fits in pretty quick, I think. Mm -hmm. um, previous biographers have said that no, Riel was because he was morose, he was depressed. Now, when when I when I look at the archives, and I, I found that Riel was he was at the head of a number of student associations. Mm -hmm. um, he was elected uh, kind of the, the president of a student a student council. Um, he was member of the French literary circle, and he presented his poems there. So he's recognized as one of the top students, and even a leader amongst these yeah. amongst these fellows. So one on one occasion, um, there's an opening of a new chapel. Mm -hmm. And Riel at that time would have been one of the top three guys in the student association looking after this chaplain. So he would have mm -hmm. been in place in charge of organizing the processions and the parades. And so you think about now like a, a 16 or 17 year old. Yeah. And he's getting to tell his other fellow students, you know, what order they come in in the parade, who's going to hold the candles, what kind yeah. of uniforms they have to wear. So he's part of the student body, even 
as he has a separate identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, so that's, that's important to, to say that, yeah, he's, he's accepted. Mm-hmm. He's not racialized as totally other, but he definitely has a distinct identity. Um, and people are going to um, be interested in that. Right. He also, he's one of the few students there who's there on a scholarship, particularly because he's indigenous. Yeah. Um, so that's another, the, the money matters in that as well. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of want to circle back real quick um, before we get into sort of how the next section, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I want to circle back okay. to um, like what, especially with like the rhetoric and philosophy and politics that they're learning, this is, these are the schools that are producing, right, like the Patriot and Yes. Yeah. That. So, okay. yeah, well, no, it's, it's, it's not, so, okay. So the Sulpicians yeah. are, they're a conservative group generally. Right. Um, they tend to be quite distinct from, um, they, they have a, a strong nationalist bent trying to maintain a French church independent mm-hmm. from Rome. Right. But at the same time within within Montreal, they are also important for training up a French Canadian elite, which can resist against Anglophone culture um, right. and maintain a French uh, literature, mm-hmm. French uh, um, language. They are definitely not of the radical secular um, French Canadian Republicans. Right. Okay. So yes, you do get these patriots who are coming out <laughs> of that, but that's because you know you, you when you go to school you don't necessarily become who your teacher is. Yeah. You absorb what your teacher says, and then you revolutionize it. You transform yeah. it. Exactly. And so you get, these, you get some of these guys like Rudolf Laflamme is kind of a mm-hmm. really important liberal lawyer in, in Montreal at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been rumors that Luriel maybe gone to school with uh, him. And that's true. I mean, there were these guys there, but there yeah. were also some really important conservatives. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you've got both sides of the political spectrum at, at this school. It's not, right. They're not just producing the one one side of the political spectrum um and you have like Cartier goes there as well who's uh you know johnny mcdonald's right hand uh, george (laughs) Cartier is johnny mcdonald's right hand man um who was really important conservative figure Mm -hmm. um and uh so you have there's there's liberal they're conservative um you those are those are that it's a it's a bit of a mix and uh for the for the that's really important to uh, maintaining French, uh, French culture. And if I just, I'll add one other complexity to this because it is, it, I know it's, yeah. I know it's complicated, but one of the things you're seeing in the 1960s in Montreal is the rise of what, what's called an ultramontane idea. And the mm-hmm. ultramontane refers to the, um, a religious movement looking beyond the mountains, ultramontane, mm-hmm. looking to Rome, mm-hmm. trying to resituate the Pope as a central authority in politics and the Sulpicians are have very ambiguous relationship to this but the bishop in montreal at the time is an ultramontane bishop Mm -hmm. uh uh, ignace bourget and riel becomes really wrapped up in ultramontane philosophy along with a number of other people at the time so while he's at a Sulpician school which is opposed to the ultramontane tendencies Mm -hmm. riel will later on in his own writings um, about philosophy about spirituality uh, adopt very uh, ultramontane positions. So again, he goes to school, he gets taught yeah. by these really uh, in, uh, conservative Sulpicians. At the same time, he's saying, yeah, but I can think for myself. Yeah. 
I will maintain uh, an a Metis identity. I will maintain a, a strong mm -hmm. connection to to Rome, despite what the Sulpicians are. And I don't want to overemphasize those those differences, but they are there, and yeah. they're a key part of understanding uh, the, the 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 tensions that Riel is struggling with. But so they, ideas, ideas are you know they're they're difficult to to tangle with, um, yeah. <laughs> and identities are difficult to tangle with. But those are part of it. Yeah. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. And they're but they are focusing on like how to speak about these ideas and and how to speak to groups of people and that like rhetorical sway. Yeah. School. So a, yeah, a big part of a big part of the education is about yeah. Learning how to learning how to talk, learning how to talk publicly, right? Yeah, that's, that's what that's what priests do. I mean, they have to. Yeah. Right? Right? That's they're, they're, that's what missionaries do. Um, and rhetoric is a really important part of the training, especially in the uh, higher levels of the, of the right. population education. Um, and um, it's about marshaling your facts, marshaling your arguments, mm -hmm. um, using um, wit, using um, you know logic. Mm -hmm. um, to defeat your opponents in a, in a in discussion, and so Riel, he's a wordsmith. Yeah. In many ways, he's a, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you know this uh, author, Marine Conkle, uh, writing Indigenous Nations, and I think yes. she's she's got a number of <laughs> right. So I mean, yeah, she, so she's got a number of really interesting discussions about in, uh, Indigenous intellectuals, mm -hmm. and how they are writing the nation back, and I see that's exactly right. the same kind of thing that Riel's engaged with here learning from these traditions but yeah. then turning that back and using a, almost a sense of irony to transform these intellectual traditions into something which can um give voice to and express indigenous motivations and indigenous interests yeah so um that's sort of getting to the the meat of my questions me personally okay. uh -huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because again i can bring up right the the cherokee national council where it was a similar education though very protestant um and john ross in particular right comes back to cherokee uh which to give modern colonial lines for it's the border of Tennessee and North Carolina um, down to the tip of Georgia whatever um, mm -hmm. he comes back there and then uses all of these very uh, right European euro western concepts of statehood and rhetoric to go up against the new United States government right this is 1830s, 1820s, 1830s, that that's happening. Um, and I'm interested in, in how, how real this, this similar sort yeah. of project uh, in the Canadian West. So there's a couple of things that I that I'd say there. First is that yeah. you know, one of the things that I've been learning increasingly from indigenous uh, studies, I guess, yeah. indigenous studies, is that we, we have to be careful when we, we talk about nationhood as being a, a European construct, a European idea. Yeah. Um, because sovereignty in many ways, yeah, it is, it is borrowed from a European legal and, uh, and cultural background, intellectual background. And nationhood may also have particular European connotations, but there are also indigenous ideas of, of belonging, which we might 
describe. I guess nation. I should clarify as like state, the state. statehood is, okay, what I'm, yeah. is what I'm what I'm getting. Yeah. Right. Also, <sighs> and, and so you see John Ross as being a founder of a state. Um, well, he makes the he makes that claim, and the the Cherokee National Council makes that claim of like. We had a nation before, we were a community before, and now we yes. have created a centralized government that you said right. we needed in order to be considered a state. Now you yes. cannot invade us and force us to move to Oklahoma, yeah. right? So yeah. I think it's, it's, I misspoke. Like, right, he's really focusing on this, this state aspect of like a... Yeah, well, I think it's, yeah, I don't think, I don't think you misspoke because he probably <laughs> uses that term nation as well. And because they, yeah. this nation and state, and state thing get confused, yeah. they overlap each other in the 19th century. And I think that's one of the things that 20th century or late, late 20th century uh, theorists have done a good job of trying to disentangle mm -hmm. state and nation. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, as we're paying more attention to that, we're seeing actually how, no, they, they confused it in the past. So why are we, uh, <laughs> why are we trying to un, un, disentangle it? But it's because you see people like Louis Riel say, right. well, we're, we're, we're a nation, yeah. but we're a nation which is founding a state. And so they, they lay it over each other. Right. And so for instance, at the, at the college, Riel will talk about the importance of the Canadian nation. And then mm -hmm. later on in, in Manitoba, he'll talk about the Métis nation. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, what you're really talking about is how do we form a state? What are the state bodies? And the kind of the apex of nationhood being that centralized state, which I think you're talking about. Um, yeah. Now, does Riel get that out of the college? That's an interesting question. Um, okay. And I, I, I don't know. I think, uh, I, I think I would be tempted to say that it's it's, it's an insufficient cause, right. but I think there's certainly there's part of it. Um, there is idea. The solutions are much more interested in uh, cultivating and encouraging the nationhood. Mm -hmm. um, statehood is really seen as something as um, much more part of secular work. Um, okay. But Riel very quickly realizes that that's the game you need to play if you want to face um, a Canadian invading army. And what you do is you go back and you set up a national council. Right. And the National Council becomes the beginnings of the state. Right. Doesn't mean that the National Council is something that is like brought in from a from the from a Sulpician or from a European context mm -hmm. because the Metis already had their own ideas of right. governance. But some of the language that Riel is certainly using, the rhetoric he's using, is yeah. being borrowed from his study of law, his study of constitutions, um, European so he's translating indigenous notions into French and yeah. English constitutionalism. And so there is, that's, that I think you're, you're right about that. And that would be this, how you, you take the nation, the, the notions mm -hmm. of indigenous governance and transform them into statehood. Right. So, but I think you're right. It, it's, you see this <laughs> pattern happening at various different stages uh, across North America, and mm -hmm. I would also say South America too. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm really interested in how how that happens. You you get um, intellectuals who are like like Ross or like Louis Riel, who get trained um, in these classical education systems, whether Protestant or uh, Catholic, and then they come back and they're like, oh, this is the language I'm going to use. And when I say that to settlers, they're like, oh, I actually I have to understand this. Right. Mm -hmm. It's because before that they could basically ignore it and say, well, these were just 
you know, this was empty land. There's nobody really living there. But now they're faced with the, la the language being thrown back at them and saying, yeah. we are civilized. We are, in fact, more civilized than you. And that's the really interesting twist that they put. And people like John A. McDonald are like, uh, mouth wide open. <laughs> How do I respond to this? Oh, I guess I better give them a, a recognition. Right. And that's that that's that that moment where where Riel wins, and I do think that Riel does win something for the Metis nation in mm -hmm. uh, in sixty nine and seventy when that second uh, resistance, when the first resistance movement takes place. Right. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, it's a, it's a victory in in that kind of in that in that aspect of the story of learning of learning from a Sulpician, mm -hmm. learning from the Sulpicians, and then applying that into a. Um, particular uh metis context in the northwest right yeah because i think like with these i mean I'd, i i hesitate to like compare people and historical context too much um especially when they're happening like 40 years apart um but these uh, the ideas of the the rhetoric and the language um and these like systems of kinship ties of governance in that way sort of being melded together yeah um, i guess it's something I, that sort of ha has has happened kind of ac across north america right yes. in various different yeah i guess one of my hesitations here is that there tends to be a, a way in which you know the, like this intellectual history which is kind of top down oh well, you went to school and you learned mm -hmm. certain ideas and then you went home and you you taught the others and they they all learned up and then that they then you created a resistance in government <laughs> that's not how it worked because real yeah. comes home and they're like we need somebody to lead it's the community which selects him and says yeah you're gonna be the the leader so yes he has some ideas that are coming from the school mm -hmm. but there's also this kinship ties as you as you point yeah. out that are pushing people up and forcing um, a, a confrontation. So there's a social and there's an intellectual history that has to be written together in order to tell us these uh, the stories of these uh, creations of uh, indigenous nations which are resisting uh, against settler colonialism. Um, and to see that as just something outwardly imposed by a church gets people's hackles up. Yeah. Um, because we <laughs> need to have, yeah, either ha the community is super important. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I was really careful about in the book to try to say, yes, there's an important figure here, but mm -hmm. he's only important because of the family which is behind him, because of the community which is behind him. He's getting pulled in. He's not some manipulator, some Machiavellian figure who's uh, running this <laughs> with, with yeah. puppet strings. No, this is something yeah. which he gets pushed to the front by other people. No. Oh. Yeah. And I don't know whether that would be the case with John Ross, but oh, I, no, 100. I he's just like the 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 person who signed the most letters because he right. could write yes and so yeah, and the it, the national council was like, i mean it, it's like 18 guys or something like that i think 16 or 18 um who are trying to to negotiate having like what even the national council could right. be because like the like cherokee society was it wasn't a, a compulsory state, right? It couldn't force anyone to do anything. Right. And so there's but, a certain amount of consent here. Yeah. 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 And so one of, one of the really interesting moments I think that you see with Louis Riel is there's a, there's a threat of a Fenian invasion. Now the Fenians mm -hmm. are kind of these, these uh, Republican Irish Republicans who want us like 
take apart the British Empire by attacking Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> so there's a, there's a supposed Fenian threat in like 1871, um, 72, where there, there's this uh, attempt to raise Irish Republicans who are going to attack and liberate Mount, uh, Manitoba from, from, the, from the British Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Riel's caught. On the one hand, he's had this Canadian government, which has come in and squashed the Métis, mm-hmm. started, started brutalizing some of the Métis community. And then he has this American Republican threat. And he has to decide, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to support the, the, the Republicans or am I going to support the British? The British haven't been very handy or very supportive. But on the other hand, the Republicans are not at all supportive of the Catholic Church. Um, right. They're a real threat. The way in which he makes decisions is not him sitting down and saying, oh, I'm going to resist. No, there are runners sent out to all the communities. And these right. 16 guys, like as you mentioned with Ross, they're actually representative of multiple other families. And so they mm-hmm. come together and they form this national committee. So it's, it's, a consent, it's, a, it's a process of consensus building that gives the National Council um, legitimacy to speak for the Métis nation. And that's right. when we begin to talk about what a state that represents this nation actually is. And so you see how the, the, the mechanics of state building are actually are working. And so it's beyond simply rhetoric. There's also like the practical um, mechanics of building consent, building legitimacy, and building an institution that can represent a general will. Right. Yeah. Which definitely comes from more than just a school. Right. Yes. <laughs> but the school is also important yeah. because like, like I said, with, like, if, if you're, if you're going to organize a procession to open up a, uh, yeah. open up a, a, a chapel, you've got to say who's in charge, yeah. who's in order. <laughs> and if Ariel is good at anything, it's about performance, right? If you mm-hmm. want to have a public debate, he stands at the front of the stage and he says, and then there's a musket volley of flags fly up and, you know, it, we don't have fireworks, but it's, <laughs> it, we, have, we, have, we have a marching band. Mm-hmm. You have to have the ceremony that goes along with it. You can right. play Indian, but you can also play state builder, right? right. You can play both sides. And Riel is very good at that, at that, that, uh, the choice to bridge and cross between both worlds. Um, and there's, yeah, so... <laughs> okay. Um, excellent. So, uh, as we sort of wrap this up, um, I guess I want to ask sort of like what, like a, I guess a takeaway question, right? Mm. Like what for especially Canadians, I think right now who are wrestling with a lot, uh, but Americans as well with our, our histories of colonialism. Right. Um, but what can we take away from like looking at histories of figures like Riel and mm. complicating the these narratives of mm. of how how they sort of exist within what we think of as like Canadian history, um, but also like the where like Métis exist yeah. within and, and indigenous nations is sort of a writ large within this context. That's a, that's that's a, a big question. Massive that's question. question. But I'll, I'll take a but stab just sort at of it. Like what, yeah, like, yeah, like what, what would you like, if you could say something to, I don't know, like 4,000 people about this, what, what yeah. would you like to? <laughs> well, I guess, so I guess one of the, okay, so the subtitle of the book is mm-hmm. the Metis nation that Canada never was. Right. And, what I'm trying to get at there a bit is this 
possibility of an alternative history a little mm -hmm. bit to say that you know there was an opportunity here when Canada might have become a Methodist nation. Riel offered this possibility. He said, look, if you want to really seriously incorporate indigenous ideas of governance, indigenous peoples, indigenous motivations, this is how you might do it. Right. And for a moment, in a brief moment in Canada's time, I think there was consideration of that being a possibility. Mm -hmm. And if we begin to recognize that there were possibilities in the past, we begin to also recognize that there were specific choices that were made to not take on those possibilities right and to say that like colonialism happened um settler colonial wiped out indigenous nations as though well, that was just the kind of the natural steamrolling effect of modernity mm -hmm. that's ignoring the idea of a, of a responsibility of particular people being informed thinking mm -hmm. about motivated um and i i think that telling and thinking about those possibilities and thinking about alternative moments in time can be instructive um, about the past mm -hmm. and perhaps about uh, the, the, the fact that the current situation is not necessarily inevitable. Um, and so I think that I hope that um, learning about the past gives us a, a sense of uh, there were other possibilities. There were other moments when things didn't seem quite so natural, when right. the Metis were not excluded necessarily. Increasingly, mm -hmm. by the time we get now, yeah, we look back and say, well, of course they were, right? Mm -hmm. But that's only because we're looking back at it retrospectively. Right. But if we look forward with Louis Riel rather than looking backwards, mm -hmm. um, I think we have a different perspective in the past. Yeah. yeah and. I think if if you look at history that way, it doesn't make the future seem written in stone either. Like, right? We can keep looking forward. Yeah, I hope so. I hope yeah. so, and I, I I really hope that we can start to look at these histories that whether they're mm -hmm. being dug up or whether they're being um, exposed and say, look, they're there. All we need to do is like as. You mentioned this to me before all we need to do is start listening better yeah um, and perhaps that's about giving new platforms perhaps that's mm -hmm. about listening better um there is there are artifacts there there are documents there that can that can help um, lead us to better truths and if you really want to um, get it get at some truth there it's it's all you need to do is start listening better right yeah. awesome yeah well thank you so much this is great uh, my pleasure. This is, uh, it's always a, one, it's a wonderful chance to talk about my, uh, my, my work. And uh, it's, uh, so it's, it's so cool to hear about the connections that can be made across borders. Like, uh, yeah. I have to learn more about R Ross Robertson now. Yeah. It's good. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the Bobby Yaga Project. If you want more awesome Bobby Yaga content, uh, you should join our Patreon where you can get access to bonus content, exclusive merch, um, our super special Discord, and extra book club content. Um, we want to specifically shout out these Patreon members. Yes, special thank you to John, the Age of Darkness podcast, Christian, Jessica, Jack CW, Whispering Sage, Annie, Adriana, and Katerina. We are delighted to have you on board, 
And thanks again for helping make the Baba Yaga Project possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!